morning. We want to welcome everyone as we uh, gather for, for worship and for praise and uh, hopefully to hear, uh, to listen for whatever the Lord may have for our hearts this morning and uh, that he might uh, uh, comfort us where we need comforted and that he might challenge us where we need to be challenged, you know. Uh, I remember telling a, a person one time, I said, you know, if you never get stretched beyond your comfort zone, then you'll never grow, right? Because if you always stay within that, that uh zone of your comfort, then you'll always stay the way that you are, right? But as God stretches us and as we keep and, and follow in obedience, that's, that's where uh, growth occurs. Uh, you know, my by my estimation, uh, growth usually involves growing pains, right? <laughs> usually involves growing pains. Uh, so as we, uh, as we look at our uh, uh, things that are going on, so next week, I will be on a great banquet weekend, and so, uh, so I won't be here. Uh, but uh, David will be leading, uh, and he's going to, he's, he's a brave man. He's going to stay in the Revelation series for Sunday morning, and you'll be uh, starting chapter two. Uh, so you'll be uh, basically the first church, right? Uh, the church of Ephesus uh, for next week for Sunday school. Uh, there'll also be, uh, is worship team, pra yeah, worship team practices tomorrow. I, usually I put Sunday, March 3rd for the Sunday that we're on so that you guys know, and, and I don't know. I wasn't thinking when I put it together, so I got a week ahead on that first one. So the rest of the stuff is okay. Uh, it was very, it was purposeful, Don, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, so um, everything's purposeful, right? Uh, so uh, Tuesday is our day that we're signed up. Uh, we're, you know, there's a group of churches that pray for the community each day of the month, and Tuesday is our day. So uh, it's like no special location, just wherever you're at, think to, to lift up the community. Uh, we're on Acts 11 on Tuesday, 2 Timothy 2 on Wednesday. Saturday group is not going to meet this week with me being on the weekend. And then on uh, the 29th, uh, we're just kind of keeping that date in front of you for uh, the Messiah and the Passover presentation. There'll be a Messianic Jew who's coming. It's completely open, uh, and so invite people from other churches. It'll be Good Friday. It'll be that evening, uh, and we are planning on uh, light refreshments, uh, so we will t take an RSVP for that. So if you're inviting people and have people coming, uh, let us know so we can make sure that there's a enough refreshments here for that. So with that, we'll have a prayer and uh, let uh, Amanda lead us into some worship. Oh, gracious and loving Father, we give you uh, thanks and praise uh, for this morning and the opportunity that we have just to, to come before you and to just kind of leave the world behind us, hopefully to, to uh, step away from all that distracts us, just to, to focus our hearts and our minds upon you that we might uh, truly offer praise and worship from our hearts, that we might seek you first in your kingdom. But also, Lord, that we might just uh, pause in the midst of life and all the things that are taking place around us to, to truly listen to how you might speak to us through your word and uh, that we might be sincere in uh, uh, being disciples who seek to follow after Christ. So we just, we give this time into your hands and we pray that you would Work in it and through it to bring glory to your name as we seek you through Jesus who's taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. All right, I'm going to start with some excerpts from Psalm 135, uh, starting with verse 13. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your fame, O Lord, is known to every generation. For the Lord will give justice to his people and have compassion on his servants. We come together this morning to lift up his name because he has done wonderful things. Um, I know we've sung this song a lot, but I really kind of want to get it into your hearts and get it um, in a place where everyone feels like, yeah, we've, we've got that song. So we're going to open with Christ, our hope in life and death. Would you please stand as you are able and join us? What is our hope in life? 
With verse 19. O Israel, praise the Lord. O priests, descendants of Aaron, praise the Lord. O Levites, praise the Lord. All you who fear the Lord, praise the Lord. The Lord be praised from Zion, for he lives here in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. And that mighty Lord calls us to come to him. Me closer, Lord, to thee. 
is so dry. <laughs> all right, and then 134, Psalm 134 says, Oh, praise the Lord, all you servants of the Lord. You who serve at night in the house of the Lord, lift your hands toward the sanctuary and praise the Lord. May the Lord who made heaven and earth bless you from Jerusalem. And we just continue on with, with lifted hands. This is the snappy song for those of you <laughs> who want to know. Our scripture reading this morning is from Luke, chapter 11, verse 14 through 36. I'll be reading from the ESV. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons from Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, 
by whom do you, your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that you bore and the breast at which you nursed. For he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the sign of man be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light of you be darkness. If, then, your whole body is full of light, Having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. May God bless the reading of and hearing of his word, and may God bless Pastor Dan's message. I know we had a, a little bit of a lengthier uh, text for today, and, and uh, as you listen to some of it, some of them might have been, well, that's kind of disjointed. How does all that fit together? Well, hopefully by the time we get to the end, we'll show how uh, there's a piece that kind of threads it all together uh, in terms of uh, how we are responding to Jesus and allowing him to illuminate our, our lives. So, uh, so that's, that's the goal. Whether or not we arrive at that goal, now that's another question for, for, for the end of the sermon, I guess. You know, throughout life, we are continually processing information, and so we're, we're always making observations, we're gathering evidence, we're processing facts, uh, and we're accumulating it all into this thing that we would call knowledge, right? And so uh, we're making observations of the world around us, we're listening to parents, to teachers, to friends, we're attending conferences and seminars, we read well, some of us might read, right? And others might listen to podcasts, whatever the case may be. We research. Uh, theoretically and hopefully, we participate in like faith-to-life discussions or small groups of some sort, right? And, uh, you know, if we're on this journey as Christians, hopefully there's sermons that we're listening to as we're gathering information and we're processing information. Uh, and we're adding this to what you might call our knowledge bucket, but that doesn't mean that we benefit from all the knowledge in our bucket, does it? Because then what we do is we categorize that information, right? So we think there's true and there's false. There's useful and there's not useful. There's interesting and there's uninteresting. And at this point, I hope my sermons don't fall into that category, right? 
But we categorize that information as it comes in, and then we weigh what we're going to do with it, if we're going to do anything at all. And what we do with that newfound knowledge either impacts or fails to impact us in the way we live, right? Because as we gather that information, as we accumulate that knowledge, we either disregard it or we shelve it or we decide to apply it in some way. Now, I, I'm pretty sure I, I've shared before uh, how uh, one time we were on a road trip with my parents and, and we listened to a series on Song of Solomon, right? And Amanda and I had listened to it before. It was from uh, Tommy Nelson out of Denton Bible. And we're like, this is really good. And we took a vacation with my parents. This was like 97, I think. So it's been a, it's been a year or two ago, right? So we, we were on this road trip and we put in the song. I, in fact, it was on cassette tapes, as I remember, right? And we're listening to Song of Solomon. And, and I remember as we got through it, my, my dad made the comment. He said, that was really good. But I've been married for 30 years now, and I don't see the need to change. <laughs> so what did he do, right? He took in the information. He even categorized it as good, but then he decided to put it on the shelf. So did it make any impact on how he lived? Not really. Now, to be fair to my dad, now, how often have you or I heard a sermon, picked up a nugget from Bible study, attended a conference of some sort, and, and walked away with, that was really good, and then returned to life and did nothing with what we learned, right? And it just became a distant memory as opposed to something that changed us. Now, uh, you know, so often what we do with the knowledge that we get is, it, is we convert it into inaction, right? We're inspired, but then we don't apply. And, and life-transforming truths, you know, they're only transforming when they're applied, I know that's deep, right? But they're only transforming when they're applied. And we have this uncanny capacity to talk ourselves into or out of following new truths, right? Even when we know deep down that, there, uh, that there's truth, uh, even when we know that things would be better, we have this uncanny ability to talk ourselves out of it. And so, for instance, uh, you know, anybody here ever make the same mistake again and again? And again, uh, whatever happened to the lesson you learned the first time, it got shelved until you repeated the mistake. And it's like, oh, yeah, now I remember, right? And then it got shelved, and it got shelved again. Uh, and, uh, you know, the challenge is not really in learning truth. The, the challenge is how do we translate truth to that we learn to life, and how do we walk in it? Because we are... Uh, creatures of habit. We're creatures of routine, right? And it's much easier to keep walking in the same direction than it is to change course, even when we recognize that there's a benefit to changing course. Uh, you know, habits are hard to change. Actually, I've always found it funny, isn't it? it it's, it's funny to me how easy it is to pick up a bad habit and how hard it is to break and how hard it is to pick up a good habit and how easy it is to break. Isn't that kind of a nasty nuance to life, right? Why is it that the good habits are so much harder to maintain than the, than the bad ones? Now, as we, uh, as we come into the text today, by way of uh, harmonization, there is complementary material in Matthew 12, 22 through 45, and Mark 3, 20 through 30. Uh, but Matthew and Mark's account happen earlier in Jesus' ministry to the north, and Luke, it's repeated in his ministry in the south, right? So it's not so much a parallel account as much as a similar account at a different time. And what it shows us is as Jesus is ministering, as Jesus is performing miracles, as Jesus is teaching, we're seeing very similar responses, right? So we're seeing very similar responses. Uh, so we have a crowd that's going to observe what Jesus does. They're going to be adding this to their knowledge bucket, right? Because we're getting into the later stages of Jesus' ministry. So they're adding it to their knowledge bucket. And then that's going to leave them with, what are we going to do with this new information? How are we going to categorize it? How are we going to process it? And that's going to lead to varying responses to Jesus and his message. So let's start with the observation of the evidence that they're going to have to evaluate. Verse 14, now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. Now, this was a pretty big deal, right? Not only because there's a miraculous healing, but according to Joel Merrill, this was a messianic miracle. And the belief in the day was, was that only the Messiah would be able to cast out a demon from a mute man. 
And, and the reason behind that was for their exorcist of the day, uh, they would get the demon to identify itself, name itself, so that they could take control or power over the demon. Well, you know what? You can't get to speak forth a name from a mute man. And so the belief was, was that only the Messiah would be able to cast out a demon from a, uh, from a mute man. And so this was not only a big deal because of a miracle, it's a big deal because it was a miracle that would be attributed to the Messiah. Now you would think that Luke, Luke who is a first-rate historian, would give us some details around this miraculous miracle, right? So uh, you'd think he would say, you know, what did Jesus say? Uh, how did Jesus do it? You know, uh, were there any signs of the demon exiting? You notice that, that Luke is very vague on the details, isn't he? Uh, he doesn't give us any information on that. Uh, but the mute man speaking is pretty good evidence of his healing, evidence that can't be denied, evidence that the crowd has observed. Now, everyone's privy to the same objective evidence. Jesus performs miracle as mute man speaks first words, right? There's your, your headline for the day. But what we quickly un uh, discern is that as amazing as the miracle is, that's not the focus that Luke takes. Because what the miracle does is it sets up a conflict that follows. And, and what Luke does is he directs our attention. He doesn't want us to get sidetracked with the details of the miracle as much as to see the responses that it received. Because more important than the miracle that took place is how are people responding to Jesus. In fact, if you go through the Gospel of John, he records miracles as signs, right? Because it's not about the miracle, it's about the truth that it points to. And so what Luke wants us to see is what's important is how are we responding? We're having this evidence before us. How are we going to respond to it? And as people evaluate the evidence, right, the mute man speaks, they're going to arrive at different conclusions. So verse 14, and the people marveled. You know, nobody could deny that a miracle took place, right? This was not your simple everyday occurrence. It was not a subjective feeling of, you know, God touched me. You know, I, I thought, you know, sometimes people are like, well, pastor, that was a, a really good sermon today, right? I'm just going to speak hypothetically because, you know, you know, pastor, that was a really good sermon today. It's like God really spoke to my, I, said, I felt such a good, I, I felt such peace that I haven't had for a long time. Or, or I had a joy that just came upon me. You know what can't be verified? your subjective feelings may have happened may not have happened right I, I i can't verify you know or nor can you subjective feelings can't be verified can they but you know what can be verified as a mute man that's now speaking right a mute man now speaking that can be verified and, and we see some of the crowd marveled, but some of them said, well, he cast out demons by Bezabel, the prince of demons. Now, the term Bezabel was derisive and derogatory way to refer to and ridicule Satan. Uh, we can get into uh, the tracing of the name, which I'm not going to do here. Uh, what's clear in verse 18 is that Satan's in view, right? So whatever the tracing and the, the history of the name. The presence of a miracle basically leaves people with two options, right? One option is admitting Jesus' authority and power come from God. Now, the problem with that option is if Jesus' power and authority come from God, then I need to be thinking about how am I responding to Jesus? Am I listening to him and am I submitting to him? And you know what the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day didn't want to do? Listen to and submit to Jesus. So this is the most obvious conclusion from what just took place before their eyes. But at the same time, this isn't really what we want to do. So option two is instead of admitting that his authority and power come from God, we're going to say his authority and power come from Satan. Because that will give us the reason to reject the man, to reject the message. It will affirm what we already want to believe about Jesus. You know, isn't it amazing how we can talk ourselves out of the truth that's right before our eyes when it's not the truth that we want to see? Here this uh, tremendous miracle takes place right before them. And they're talking themselves out of what the miracle's pointing them to. So we have people that are processing the same information, but they're going to arrive at opposite conclusions. 
And then we have others who detest him. They keep uh, seeking a sign from heaven, verse 16. So it's like, uh, okay, Jesus, this is great. Give us a sign. Now put yourself in the mind of Jesus at this point. Maybe that's sacrilegious. I don't know, right? But think about what you, you, you mean, uh, Jesus, give us a sign. You mean like, I don't know, casting out a demon from a mute man? Like that's not good enough for you? How much more do you need to see in order to make a decision for me? Now, keep in mind, we're getting to the later stages of Jesus' ministry. So it's not like this is his first sign, nor is it like this is his only sign. But it's one among many signs that they would have undoubtedly heard about if they have not already witnessed some of them, right? So you might think of the person who's kind of like, um, you know, I've seen a lot, but I, I just don't know. I have, a, I have some unanswered questions, or, you know, I don't understand X, Y, or Z, so even though I have plenty of reason to believe A, B, and C, I still don't have the answers to these things, or, you know, however much evidence you give me, or however much information you provide, how many questions you explain, I'm just not ready to make a commitment. I'm not ready to make a decision, regardless of how much information stands to reason, right? I'm just... It's not, it's not like a hostile response, but neither is it a I'm in response. And you might say, you know, if we have those who were amazed and we have those who were opposed, this is the group that says, you know, I'm going to wait and see. I want to just sit on the fence for a little bit. I, you know, I'm not really sure what it will take to convince me, but I'll, I'll know when it happens, right? Maybe, maybe later. And when they say, give us a sign, what it really is, is it's a, a code for an excuse to delay responding. They want to say, stay neutral. Now, what we're going to see as we look through the text is a delayed response is the same as a negative response. Because ultimately, there is no neutral position when it comes to Jesus. Now, when I was out uh, running, this will show you, my brain was probably deprived of oxygen, which you'll, you'll understand when I... When I say what I'm about to say, right? I'm out running, and, and the thought that hit me was, inaction is the action of no action. How's that sound for strange talk? Inaction is the action of no action, right? Because if you think about it, it's as much of a response as committing to Jesus. It's as much of a response as being opposed to Jesus, right? It's a response, just the same. Now, the problem with sitting on the fence is not realizing that you're sitting on the wrong side of the fence. And that's really what we're going to see in the text, right, is there really is no neutral position. If you're sitting on the fence, you're on the wrong side of the fence. And how they respond to Jesus is going to be dependent on how they're evaluating the evidence at hand and whether or not they're being honest with the evidence at hand. Because it's not just about acquiring new information. It's also about how are you processing the new information that you're acquiring. And just as we saw, it's possible to interpret the evidence differently, right? In the same way that it's possible that two, two people might interpret a scripture passage differently. But that doesn't mean that every interpretation is supported by the evidence, right? So when we arrive at an opinion, when we come to an idea, right, the first question we need to be asking is, does the evidence actually support that interpretation or that opinion? Uh, because, you know, opinions are a dime a dozen, aren't they? Have you ever met somebody without an opinion? But just because everybody has one doesn't make it right. And just because there might be merit to different opinions doesn't mean that they all have the same kind of merit. Because like with interpretations, right, the question is, is, is it supported by the evidence? As we put all of it together, does it support whatever that opinion might be? And one of the questions that we should, uh, you know, be honest with ourselves about and self-reflective about is, am I being honest with myself? Or am I following the facts wherever they lead, even when they lead me someplace that I may not want to go? Because that's really the place that the religious leaders are at at this point, right? Will I follow the evidence wherever it leads, even if that's not exactly where I want to go? And in particular, when, that's, when that evidence takes me to, I need to repent. I need to change course. I need to walk in a new direction. 
Now, with that said, do you want the direction of your life to be based on what's true or what's untrue? Because very often we talk ourselves out of the truth that's right before our eyes. Because it's easier, it's more comfortable. But that doesn't mean we're going where we want to head. So Jesus lays out his logical case to reveal the fallacy of their reasoning. So of the options available, right, which is best supported by the evidence at hand? So we have those who are marveling. We have those who are saying, well, it's by the power of Bezabel. So Jesus responds to that. He says, but he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan is also divided against himself, how would his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Bezabel. And if I cast out demons by Bezabel, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So casting out a demon by the power of Satan so that a man is freed from bondage to Satan, that doesn't seem like something Satan would do. So either Satan is divided against himself, which is rather unlikely, or what is more likely is it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons. So it's, it's not that Satan could not, it's that he would not, right? He would not work against himself. It's nonsense to think that Satan is dividing his own house and working against his own purposes. You know, there's only one institution in, in, that does that, right? And that's uh, <clears throat> politicians, <laughs> right? I, I must have got something caught in my throat, right? Satan is smarter than that. So either Satan is divided against himself, which is rather unlikely, or it's more likely that it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons. And what Jesus is highlighting is that there's not a kingdom divided, but there are kingdoms in conflict. There are kingdoms in conflict. He says, by the finger of God. Now, that actually has a couple of possible reference points in the Old Testament. And the first and, and most likely is, is he's referring back to, to Exodus 8, 19. You might remember Moses comes into Egypt, right? And he's performing, uh, God's performing these miracles through, through Moses. And if you remember, uh, the first plagues that came upon Egypt or the first miracles, they were duplicated by the magicians of Egypt. And then as we're going through miracle after miracle, we get to a point in chapter 8 where they're no longer able to do what, what God is doing through Moses. And Pharaoh's magicians, unable to duplicate what's being done by God through Moses, say, this is none other than the finger of God. And they're highlighting God's power. Now, there's also another allusion in Exodus 31 and Deuteronomy 9 when uh, we have the stone tablets with the Ten Commandments were written by the finger of God, which would highlight the revelation of God. So either Jesus is using this phrase to emphasize the power of God or the revelation of God, or I would say it's not, neither, it's not an either or, but a both end, right? Uh, we have a revelation of God through a display of the power of God. And as Israel was to follow Moses out of physical bondage when God revealed himself in power, the point is clear that they're to follow Jesus out of spiritual bondage. And why should they follow him? Because they have evidence and reasons to do so. Because he's demonstrating that the authority and the power of God are upon him. So the kingdom has arrived in the person of Jesus. Well, how do we know? Well, through his power to cast out the demon from the mute man. And so we have the inauguration of the kingdom uh, that's come with the first coming of Jesus. We have the consummation of the kingdom that's going to happen at his second coming. And in between, we have our opportunity to enter the kingdom. Right? It's our opportunity to enter the kingdom. So how will they respond to the kingdom's arrival in Jesus? Well, it depends on whether they recognize the kingdom's arrival in Jesus or whether they've missed the messianic sign of the kingdom's arrival. And so Jesus is going to tell them a little parable to illustrate what they just saw in practice. That's verses 21 and 22. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever, oh, I'm sorry, I'm going to stop right there at that point. 
So we have a strong man, fully armed, guarding his palace, keeping his goods safe. Who is that? That's Satan. And we have one stronger who attacks, who overcomes him, takes away his armor, divides his spoil. Who is that? That's Jesus. And we have what is or who is the spoil? How about the man who was just set free from a demon? How about those who are in the kingdom of darkness who need to come into the kingdom of light? How about those who are following the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians chapter 2, to follow the God who is creator of heaven and earth? We are the spoil. People who were under the influence of the evil one who are coming under the influence of the righteous one. And the cosmic clash of kingdoms, you are in one kingdom or the other. Verse 23 goes on, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. You notice it's not a matter of just whether you're hostile or not, right? It's whether you've embraced him or not. And Butler writes, and I quote, the presence of the kingdom of God overthrowing the power of Satan does not call for an impartial audience enjoying the battle. Everyone must take sides. The kingdom has come in Jesus, and it's time to evaluate your response to him because your response to Jesus will determine which kingdom you're in. And which kingdom you're in, whether or not you're walking in the way of blessing or in the way of condemnation. Because it's not enough to be touched by Jesus. It's not enough just to receive blessings from God. We also have to authentically respond to him. Because you can receive a blessing and be worse off in the end if you don't respond to the opportunity that God has given you. So it's not enough... For the, healed, uh, for the man to be healed of the demon, right, if he refuses to enter the kingdom, if he refuses to respond to Jesus and his message. So that's what verses 24 through 26 then highlight. So this is how we're seeing some of the verses connecting, right? So when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Now keep in mind the context. We just had a man who was set free from the demon, right? But nothing is said of his faith. Nothing is said of his response to Jesus, right? And Jesus is highlighting, you know, it's not enough to empty the house. The house needs to be filled, or he'll come back with buddies. And the last date will be worse than the first date. We're not to just passively receive God's blessings and go on our merry way as though nothing has happened. We are to respond positively to the proclamation of the kingdom that's being given in Jesus. He says, and the state of that person will be worse than the first. Now, if you go and read it in Matthew's account, Matthew will broaden the concept. So he says, uh, or Jesus says in Matthew then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first, right? So that sounds familiar. But Matthew adds one more line to it. So also it will be with this evil generation. And Matthew, we see the principle that's applied to the one being extended to this generation. Now think about this generation. They're being touched by the presence of Christ, they had the opportunity to hear the word of God from the Son of God. And he's saying, if you don't avail yourself of the opportunity that's before you, the last state will be worse than the first. Because now is the time of opportunity. Now, the sections, that, like I mentioned at the start, might seem a little disjointed. So kind of, kind of see this theme that's running through each of the sections we read. We have the observation of the miracle that's leading to a divided response. Uh, their response is going to determine whether their latter state will be worse than the first because they can disregard the knowledge of Jesus, they can shelve the knowledge of Jesus, or they can actually apply and respond to it properly. And so if his authority and his power are from God, then I need to listen and obey him. So that brings us into the next section, 
Uh, as he said these things, right, we're still in the same crowd, a woman who in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. So uh, Jews put extremely high value on family ties. Remember, uh, we are children of Abraham, right? That descent was very vital to them. We're blessed because of who we are. Uh, I have a life application Bible that has this in the study notes. A man's value came from his ancestors. A woman's value came from the sons she bore, right? So that's what's kind of being reflected in this lady's response. Now, we come to verse 28. Here's how Jesus responds to that. He says, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now that's the theme that's going to run from this man who's healed, who needs to respond so that his latter state is not worse than his first, to this little interaction with this woman, to the sign of Jonah, which we're going to see is also highlighting with how do we respond to the word of God, right? The queen of the south and the people of Nineveh will judge you because they actually responded to the word of God that you didn't, to the light where the word of God is the lamp, where the son of God is our light who illuminates our life. See how all the sections kind of come together with this theme of, you know, it's not enough to hear, we also need to obey. Letting his, his it depends on how we respond to, to Jesus. Uh, so obedience to God is more important than one's heritage. The way of blessing is to hear the word and to keep it. Now at this point, whatever the crowd, uh, whatever crowd there was, the crowd's increasing. Jesus returns to those who were divided in their response to him. Some marveled, some ascribed his authority and power to Satan, and Jesus has already refuted that uh, vantage point. Others are, are seeking a sign from Jesus, right? So verses 15, 16, they're asking for a sign. So Jesus dealt with the uh, accusation. Uh, you do it by the prince of demons. So Jesus is now going to return to the sign from heaven. So that's tying us back to verses 15 through 16. Now, what's wrong with a little sign? Well, the fact that Jesus has already given them multiple signs that they seem to be ignoring, including the once mute man who's now not so mute. So they're asking for a sign while they're ignoring the signs that Jesus gives. And just as those who are outrightly opposed to Jesus need to respond to the opportunity they've been given, so do those who are taking a, I'm going to wait and see approach. And so Jesus says, coming back to the first part, right? The sign that you will be given is the sign of Jonah. This is verses 29 through 32. And the sign of Jonah is actually debated from, from Luke's perspective. Now, if you go and read in the book of Matthew, uh, Jesus clearly points to the sign of Jonah being his death and resurrection. So this is the sign of Jonah. He's in the belly of the fish for three days, right? Uh, so in Matthew, if you read Matthew's account, very clearly the sign of Jonah is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, when we look at Luke's account, Luke doesn't mention Jonah's timeout. Most nasty timeout of all timeouts in all of world history, right? Luke doesn't mention Jonah's timeout for some soul-searching reflection. What Luke highlights is the preaching of Jonah. So you have scholars that say, well, the sign of Jonah is the preaching of the Word of God that leads to repentance. Uh, you have some that say, well, it's still the resurrection, or some will say that Luke focuses on the future aspect, so it, it will still be, it's the preaching that leads to the sign. So they kind of debate and, and talk about it. Uh, but he does highlight the idea of the people of Nineveh, right, which were very wicked pagan people and the queen of the south. Now, what did the wicked people of Nineveh and the queen of the south have in common that Luke highlights for us? Well, let me give you a hint. The connection goes back to verse 28. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. What did the people of Nineveh do and the queen of the south do that the people of Israel are not doing? Acting on the word of God. Listening to and acting on the word of God. So the queen of the south and the Ninevites, they converted with far less worthy preachers and far less evidence how much more should they respond to Jesus because in Jesus is the way of blessing. And you know what else the Queen of the South and the, the people of Nineveh did? They did it without any miracles. Now, I could only wish that I had the success of Jonah, right? 
I would like to say my motivations are better than Jonah's, right? But, you know, Jonah was the most reluctant preacher of all time and had such a phenomenal response, right? Because that was all about the hand of God. So that brings us to the finale in verses 33 through 36, where now we have the illustration of the lamp and the light. Now, for sake of time, you have, you've already heard David read it, and you can read it again, so I'm not going to read the verses again. But, you know, light only benefits you when it is received. And hearing Jesus' message puts a responsibility on the hearer. And, and as you kind of think about these verses, right, good eyes admit light, bad ones do not. You know, you, you can't see much in a dark room. But neither can you see in a room with the lights on if your eyes are shut. And Marshall writes, and I quote, Luke brings this controversial section to an end with a closing ad admonition on the need for those who hear Jesus to respond to his teaching instead of continuing in the darkness of ignorance. Jesus or his message of the kingdom is like a light which illuminates those who enter a house. There is nothing hidden about this light. Any lack of illumination is due to the recipient. If he has a sound eye, the light will enter his whole being. But if his eye is evil, no light will enter. Jesus is the light who is before their eyes. Will they choose to open their eyes to see? Will they recognize what the evidence of the miracle is pointing them to? You know, your eyes don't produce the light, but they are the means for the light to enter. And as we think about the way of blessing, right, it is to open your eyes with an honest look at who Jesus is so that his light might fill your life and that his word might illuminate your path. So God has given enough evidence to leave us without excuse, right? And we can shut our eyes to that evidence and we can remain in darkness and ignorance or we can honestly evaluate the evidence and respond authentically to who Jesus is and to the message that Jesus is bringing. Because that, in that message and in that uh, Christ is the way of blessing, that we might uh, embrace him and walk in his ways and walk in the way of blessing. Amen. In your bulletin, you have a communication card, and we invite you to uh, think about how God might be speaking to your heart this morning. And then we encourage you to offer that as, as part of your worship uh, as part of your next steps uh, that you're willing to, to give to him. As we uh, prepare ourselves for uh, communion and stewardship, you know, light and darkness were commonly used throughout the scriptures as metaphors to speak of one's uh, spiritual condition. And when your eye is healthy, then your whole body is full of light. But when it's bad, your body is full of darkness. A healthy eye does not produce the light, right, but it allows the light to enter. Uh, and the problem with the bad eye, of course, is it does not allow the light to enter, and so it leaves you full of darkness. And the question is, is do you have a healthy eye that recognizes that Jesus is the light and allows his light to enter and so to illuminate your life? So Jesus displayed the power of God not only in casting out demons, but ultimately through his life, death, and resurrection. He is likewise the revelation of God as God who came in the flesh to illuminate our path. So as we come to the Lord's table, uh, may your eyes be open to seeing him for who he is. May your ears be open to listening to what he says, your hands to doing what he asks, and your feet to going wherever he leads, that you may indeed walk in the way of blessing as you follow him through your next steps in the stewardship of your life. So as we prepare ourselves, I want to remind you, that on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And after he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let us pray. O oh, gracious and loving Father, what a joy it is to recognize what you have done for us through your Son, Jesus Christ. That he truly gives light unto our path. But we can't benefit from that light without first receiving it and allowing him to illuminate our path. And so we just come to this table and pray that you would give us eyes to see who Jesus is in his fullness. 
and that you'd give us ears to hear what it is that he would teach us so that we might have the hands and the feet to follow wherever he may lead us and whatever he may call us to do. And in so doing, discover that that indeed is the way of blessing. It is in his name we come. Amen. We invite you to reflect on who Jesus is and how you're responding to him and to his word as you come. As many blessings as we receive from the Lord, it is nice to turn our hearts back to him and to give him blessing for all that he has done, for who he is. So we're going to close our service today with that. Uh, would you please stand and join us with a Knees to the Earth. <clears throat> Shit. 
the queen of the south and even the wicked Ninevites acted on the word of God without even needing a sign from God. While those who were supposed to be God's people failed to hear the word of God delivered through the Son of God, even with signs from God. May we go forth to truly reflect on how we are responding to him and choose to walk in the way of blessing as we choose to hear the word of God and keep it as we walk in the light of Christ. Go in his name and in his light. Amen.